Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the New Books Network Animal Studies channel. My name is Kyle Johansson, and I'm a host on this channel. Today, I'm very happy to be interviewing Aaron Greenwood. Aaron is an animal writer, a novelist, and a former lawyer. We'll be discussing her novel, Your Robot Dog Will Die, which was published in 2018 by Soho Press. Uh, Welcome to the podcast, Aaron. Hi, Kyle. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, thanks so much for for joining me. Uh, Before we begin talking about your book, I was hoping that you would tell us a bit about yourself, such as where you're from, uh, what you read about, or or anything else you think listeners might want to know about you. Oh, sure. Uh, I'm originally from Rhode Island. Uh, My family is still around there. Uh, And then I've lived in about a thousand different other places since then, um, including Saipan, an island out in Micronesia where where I got to practice law for five and a half years, which was really cool. Um, and uh, these days, my husband and I live in St. Petersburg, Florida, um, which is a beautiful little city in a very strange state. Um, and and uh, I these days, I, I used to be, well, as you said, I used to be a lawyer. Then I became a journalist. I was an animal welfare journalist. Um, and for the last five or so years, I've been working with animal nonprofits doing communications, writing and editing. Okay, right. Cool. Um, yeah, no, I, I saw um, that you, you you used to be the, um, I guess, animal, you, you call it the animal welfare editor for the Huffington mm-hmm. Post, which is which is pretty cool. I guess you did that for, for a while. Um, and yeah, right now, I guess a lot of what you do is you, yeah, you do um, written work of different kinds for, for animal organizations. Do you want to, do you want to say anything about, about either of those things? Sure. Um, yeah, I mean, I just got so lucky with the getting to be an animal welfare journalist. Um, I just sort of, I just sort of stumbled into it. Um, I've been a lifelong animal lover and really interested in animals all my life. And you know, I was the the little kid who'd run up to the barking dog and try to pet them. I mean, I just, I just have always loved animals. I mean, I became vegetarian when I was just a little kid because I loved animals very much. Um, but I didn't ever really think about having a career in animals, um, which I guess was very short-sighted of me. Uh, but I, I really liked writing. And even while I was working as a lawyer, I started doing a lot of freelance writing, um, just about all kinds of different things about law and travel. And I mean, I wrote about a, a singer who sang songs about window washing for a window washing trade publication at one point. I mean, I really, I tried everything. Um, and then I got hired on at the Huffington Post to to be an editor on what they were calling at the time their locals verticals. So so they were based in a whole bunch of different cities, um, and they were they were pages on the Huffington Post that were supposed to just sort of cover cover what was going on in that city. Um, and I was I was living in Washington D.C. at the time, and so I was one of the editors for the D.C. vertical, um, and we really had free reign to kind of pursue whatever we were interested in that we thought readers would be interested in. And and I just sort of from the start started reaching out to local animal shelters just to see if there were any stories there and started doing these big roundups of of adoptable pet slideshows that would get tons of traffic and sort of, you know, that that broadened into writing just all kinds of animal stories, you know, stories about law and policy affecting animals, stories about pets needing adoption, stories about pet rescue, stories, you know, some wildlife stories, just kind of everything. And the more I wrote these stories, the more I just found this whole field to be the most interesting thing I could I could get my mind around. Um, and readers really liked it too. And so eventually, eventually I just sort of I don't know why I had the freedom to do this, but I just sort of decided that that's what I was going to write about from then on. And so I just started writing only animal stories and nobody told me to stop doing that. So, I mean, I got very lucky that way. And eventually I think they just sort of gave up and changed my title to animal welfare editor. Um, 
and it was it was I just loved it. I loved everything about it. I mean, I I loved getting to write these stories. I loved getting to cover a little slice of the world that at the time wasn't getting all that much attention. I think now there's much more sort of mainstream coverage of of companion animal welfare and animal sheltering and animal rescue. Um, but at the time, it, it didn't seem like there was so much. Hmm. And I just found the stories to be wonderful to cover. And I loved the feeling that, you know, in a, in a world where so much is kind of chaotic and existentially difficult and, you know, that there's just all these things to try to get your mind around. Here was a little piece of the world where you could actually make a real difference. And, and I, I don't know. I really loved it. That, that, that's really cool. I like how you use your, your you, how you use your freedom. Uh, you, you weren't hired to be an, an animal welfare editor, but you basically <laughs> turned your position into that position by just being pers- persistent about your coverage of animal welfare stories. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, my readers yeah. being persistent, honestly, it's because, you know, because I developed these relationships within the sort of sheltering and, and rescue world within the animal welfare world more broadly too. And then also readers really responded to them. If if readers hadn't been interested in this piece of the world, definitely would not have kept the freedom to just sort of decide for myself that this is what I was going to write about. But but we got a huge response from readers, and so it just kind of it it fed my sense that this was something really worth covering. Right. Okay. Um, well, yeah, we should we should talk about your book soon. Um, but before that, uh, one thing that's just really cool about your book, I think, is. Um, uh, it's been optioned by Centerboro Productions for purposes of turning it into an animated television show. I, I guess this just happened uh, a few a few weeks ago or something like that. Um, I, that you're, I take it you're excited about this. Um, it's it sounds really exciting. Um, yeah, it's super exciting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it was exciting and surprising. And I mean, I, I you know, I've I've never had anything like this happen before, and so I'm not really sure what to expect as we go. Um, but but the people from Centerboro have been have been great at sort of filling me in on how they're going and sort of what they're doing to try to make this happen. And I, I'm just thrilled. I hope it happens. OK, yeah. So I guess I guess there's so the, it being optioned is not enough for it to be definitely a television show. It's going to depend on certain factors uh, or yeah. something like that. Okay. Yes. Yes, apparently, okay. apparently that's the case. Yeah. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> the option gives them the right to turn it into a TV show, mm-hmm. and now they have to get all the pieces in place to actually do that. And I, okay. I don't—they seem—they seem very sincere and and enthusiastic, and I, I really hope it'll happen. Okay, me too. Yeah, um, and I really hope it ends up on like I don't know. I mean, it could end up anywhere. Netflix or something would be great. Um, who knows? Um, well, okay, so. Yeah, let's talk about the book. So, your robot dog will die. Uh, why did you decide to write this book? Um, that's a great question. Um, it's sort of a combination of things. Uh, so one was, I, you know, when you write a book, it it's like a long time that you're sitting there, sort of with your mind in in this other world that you're working in. So one was, I just really wanted to spend a lot of time in a sanctuary for dogs. So I. There was a setting that I really wanted to spend time in. There were these characters that I kept thinking about. Um, and also, I, there was there was this uh, sort of issue that I, I needed to make sense of. So one of, one of the things that I covered a lot as a, as a journalist was there's this one kind of major animal group who I don't usually name because they're extremely litigious. Um, but they have one animal shelter in Virginia where they kill almost every animal who comes in. And not only that, but they, they take people's pets, you know, sometimes telling them that they're going to find other homes and kill them. They advocate uh, to make pit bulls illegal in communities all over. They, they advocate for killing feral cats. And this is a major animal group that, that a lot of people think of as having a lot of, as having a lot of moral authority. They're definitely, you know, have huge brand recognition. You know, when you hear them speak, if you're not sort of aware of this piece of what they're doing, I think your natural inclination would be to think, well, if this group is saying, you know, we should kill feral cats, then we should probably kill feral cats. And I was so disturbed by, I was so disturbed by what they were doing. And I kept writing about it in 
journalism pieces and I kept trying to report on it and kept trying to make sense of it in nonfiction. And finally, I just thought the only way I'm ever going to be able to either make sense of this to myself or have any kind of resolution is to turn it into fiction where I can, or I can, you know, have, have a story play out and have some kind of uh, catharsis. Um, and so, and so I wrote this book to try to make sense of these things. Okay. Okay. Gotcha. Um, I think that's what you said is foreshadowing a little bit, something I'm going to ask about um, later on. Um, okay. So, but uh, uh, with respect to, yeah, your, your motivation for writing the book, um, uh, I guess one thing, another thing I was wondering is just uh, why you decided. So, I mean, yeah, you talk about some, like, there's some, there's some interesting uh, animal, animal ethics uh, and, and philosophical content uh, in the book or themes in the book. Um, and uh, I, I guess one thing I was wondering is, is why you wanted to explore these ideas specifically via um, a young adult novel. Is there, was there any reason why you chose that, that, that particular genre as your like, vehicle for exploring these themes? Sure. Yeah. I mean, there's the sort of substantive reason and then there's also the practical reason. So the substantive reason is I thought it made sense a lot for for the story to center on somebody who's kind of at the age where you start questioning pretty deeply the things that you've brought, been brought up with. You know, it's 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 a coming of age, sort of an age. She's 16 in the book, um, the main character, Nano, Nano Miller. Um, and, you know, she she has grown up in this in this place where she thinks it's paradise and she doesn't even really you know, doesn't even really know about the world outside of where she's grown up. And then she's sort of forced to confront the, uh, she's sort of forced to confront some things that, that make her question what it is that she grew up with and what it is that she believes. And then she has to leave home, like a lot of people do at that age, to kind of learn about the world and learn who she is in that world and learn what she believes in and, mm-hmm. and try to discover what she, what she thinks is the truth. Um, mm-hmm. And then to decide what to do with what it is that she learns when she's away from home and, and to come back and fight for what she cares about and what she believes in. So mm-hmm. I think, you know, I think it makes a lot of sense for somebody who is about that age to be to be reckoning with those sorts of things and to be figuring out who she wants to be, you know, in the world that she's discovering. Um, so that's that's the uh, the substantive reason. And the practical reason is. Uh, I had an editor who had written a previous book for who was an editor for a young adult imprint. And I just adored this editor. And, you know, we enjoyed working together. And when my agent and I were putting together the sort of pitch for this book, he was, of course, the first person who we thought of. So, you know, that was the practical reason. Okay, right. Well, so the stuff you said uh, leads into my next question uh, pretty nicely, I think. And I'm just wondering, um, so but before we get into anything else, can you can you please describe your book's plot and uh, some of the main characters too? Sure. Yeah. Um, so it's called Your Robot Dog Will Die. And it's about this community of people who live in a place called Dog Island, um, which is a sanctuary for what they believe is the last living dogs on earth. Um, and they, they, it's, it's an island off the coast of Florida. Um, and they have this, this special area where the dogs who, you know, who, who are no longer, they think, who are no longer safe to actually live with humans. There's been a genetic experiment and it's sort of changed the dog's disposition um, where they live. And then the humans live in this kind of, this kind of abandoned town that they've turned into their, their human community there um, where they live with each other and share a lot and also live with these newer models of robot dogs. They have this relationship with a company called Mechanical Tail, um, and Mechanical Tail develops these robot dogs to be companions to replace the, the real dogs, the organics, we call them in the book, um, that no longer exist. Uh, and then Nano, pretty early on in the book, discovers that, that the dogs actually maybe can be safe and that, that some bad things are happening with these dogs. Um, and she she has to leave home to go sort of discover what's happening. And she leaves with her best friend slash love interest wolf um who is a very supportive young man with a beautiful head of curly hair um and he supports her as she kind of goes out to uncover all the things that she needs to learn um yeah i don't i don't know how much more to tell than that i don't want to spoil the whole thing um 
Yeah. Is that, is that what you got out of the book too? Am I? <laughs> I think that's enough. I mean, we're, we're going to end up inevitably talking yeah. a whole bunch more about what happens in the book as I, as I continue to ask questions. So maybe it's best to, to leave it, to leave it at that for the moment. <laughs> um, okay, cool. Well, so there's, there, there are a few respects in which your book is a work of speculative fiction. Um, but perhaps the main speculative element in the book is that it explores what might happen if genetic experimentation caused dogs to stop wagging their tails. Um, one effect of that, among others, is that uh, dogs become a threat to humans, um, mm -hmm. often described as wild in the book. Um, and uh, because dogs have become a threat to humans, uh, humans proceed to exterminate nearly all dogs. I was hoping that you would comment on this feature of the book, um, but but especially on why it is that dogs become a threat once they well they've stopped wagging their tails. I mean, this is one of the big questions in the book, though, isn't it? Have they actually become a threat when they stopped wagging their tails? I mean, I, I think I think some of it is that we are just so adept. I mean, I, I guess this is the question, isn't it? Are we so adept at understanding animal communication? And you know, with dogs. We generally feel like we are, and one of their main modes of communicating with us is through, is through their tail motion, is through their wags. You know, it's how it's how we see that they like us, even though tail wags can mean all kinds of different things. Um, but when the dogs stop wagging their tails, I mean, I don't think it's that the dog that the dog wags not existing anymore is what causes the humans to stop wanting to live near the dogs. I think it's it's more just sort of part of the whole package of things that makes the humans not trust the dogs anymore, think that they're dangerous or claim that they're dangerous. Um, but I just think it's one of the, you know, it's just it's just such a simple sign of affection. And when that's gone, it's it's just so incredibly sad and and who knows what would happen after that. But in this case, you know, what what happened after that was it it that the dogs did in some cases turn, turn pretty aggressive toward the humans, but then also the humans mistreated the dogs pretty badly. It really just destroyed tens of thousands of years of, of, of uh, comfortable living together, hmm. of happy living together. Yeah. I, I thought this was, yeah, I thought this was one of the really neat ideas in the book, I guess. Um, Cause it, it, it invited for me, at least it invited a whole bunch of just reflection um, cause, um, so, I mean, yeah, it, I guess it's something that's highlighted is that when the, this genetic experimentation takes place and I, I guess its purpose was to try and make dogs even better companions or whatever, but it kind of, it backfires and ends up causing them to, um, uh, stop wagging their tails. And, and somehow it also spreads as like a virus, which mm -hmm. you, you, I think intelligently decide not to explain really. You're just like, <laughs> can read about that if they want to in some science book or whatever. Um, I raised <laughs> my hands at that point, and I thought that was, that was <laughs> I, I love that. That was that was exactly the right thing to do. Um, <laughs> you know, um, but uh, so so yeah, this this genet, you know this accident of genetic experimentation, dogs not wagging their tails anymore, and it's, it, it it spreads across the entire world's entire dog population, and. Um, uh, and, and dogs become perceived as threatening at least. Um, and, and yeah, so yeah, there's this question about are, yeah, are, are they, are they a threat or if they are a threat, why are they a threat? Um, because it, it there is some evidence of, yeah, of, of them being a threat. Um, I think there's this sort of brief part of the book where you discuss like the history surrounding this uh, genetic experimentation or the, or the history that, that, that comes right after it. Um, and in particular, um, there were, you know, instances of, children and the elderly and whatnot getting mauled by gangs of dogs on the streets and stuff like that um that are part i guess this is just part of part of the history associated with the with the with the book that that these things happened that people were being preyed upon by dogs um and so that makes them seem like a real threat um but on the other hand um some of the book's main characters so um uh, billy uh who's uh, nano's brother and also her friend jack um, they have some pretty positive experiences with or with biological dogs um, in, in the book that that really sort of challenged the idea that they're that they've become these like wild threats. Um, like so, uh, the, what, what these experiences suggest is that even though it's yeah, it's really hard to understand dogs now or or, to, or relate to them because they're not wagging their tails anymore. Um, it's still possible to gain their trust and for for there to be. Um, um, beneficial interactions with them, uh, mutually beneficial interactions. Um, and so, so there, there's, there's these two things. Um, I mean, I, I guess 
maybe one way of reading it is that uh, because, yeah, because dogs have stopped wagging their tails, it became really difficult to um, read their their um, mental states or to, to understand what 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 sort of what what they what they wanted or to, to understand when they were happy or when they were being when they were being aggressive or or what have you. Um, and that in turn might have just led to some sort of escalated conflict. Like it, it, maybe maybe the book's open to interpretation that way. The reason dogs end up becoming so threatening is because people treated them as threatening mm-hmm. and then that created a whole bunch of conflict or something like that. Um, I, I, I take it maybe the book is meant to be a little open with regards to this, open to just the reader <laughs> um, playing around with with everything that with that with everything in the book and trying trying to find a, a way of interpreting it. Yeah, I mean, definitely, definitely, it's open. Um, but also, you know, this is a time of environmental crisis as well, um, and and so you know there is scarcity of resources, and at this time that the dogs are changing, you know, and the people are changing their behavior toward them. You know, we we don't know exactly how they're living. Um, in I, I I guess I should have explored this more in the book because it would have been really interesting. You know, how are they living in cities? How are they living in rural areas together? Are they fighting over the food that's mm-hmm. left? I mean, I, I I think they probably are. Um, but also, you know, I, I don't want to give away too much. But you know, if the dogs did sort of and actually, I would love to hear, sort of given your background and given what you think about and write about, I'd love to hear your thoughts about them becoming wild. Um, but that, you know, the, the sort of theory of how we came to start living with dogs is that they were wolves who decided that they would hang around with humans because they got fed when, when they hung around the humans. And in exchange, they protected the humans from other you know, dangerous people or dangerous animals or whatever it was. And so we sort of formed this companionable family unit with dogs way back when. Um, and I, I, you know, I, I don't want to give away what happens in the book, but I really like the idea that even if we sort of have this, this severing of that bond at one point that we can find our way back to each other. And I guess, I guess I believe in that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I, I thought it was, yeah. So just describing dogs as, wild once they've lost the ability to wag their tails and also once um they stop i guess um living with human beings living in their homes um that 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 that, that is apt that that's apt i mean the, the the concept is complicated but part part of the concept of wildness is or is that um wild animals have not been bred by us um and because they haven't been um bred by us um they also don't have um the sorts of features that would be needed for them to socialize with us successfully. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, dogs will, in your world will, will still have been bred by us even after the genetic experimentation, but they lose a lot of the sociability that's a product of breeding. And so it does make sense to call them wild, I think. Um, I'm really glad yeah. to hear you say that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> That's a big relief. <laughs> I would have had to go back to my editor these years later and say, we got to change this. <laughs> no no it's good it's good it's 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 neat Thank you. um well so you you you've already described dog island a little bit in when i uh uh when you were uh describing the characters and the plot of the book but um dog island is such an a strange place that maybe maybe uh i'll invite you to elaborate on your description a bit um so i mean mo- most of the book takes place on this on this island dog island um and so yeah i was hoping that and and the people who live on it are are odd um, so I was hoping you'd yeah describe the island, um, the people who live there, and also the the company that's associated with the island, uh, Mechanical Tail. Sure, yeah. So Dog Island, the community itself is sort of loosely based on this town where where we lived um, when I first started thinking about this book called Gulfport, Florida, which is just this this great little unique community with brightly colored houses and a main street and you know, everybody kind of knows each other and, and, you know, people are, people are excited to live in Gulfport. And, and I just like the idea of this, this small community of kind of, I don't know, I mean, I sort of hate this word, but, but this community of eccentrics of people who have just chosen to live together in a, in a little place where everyone's going to be up in each other's business all the time. And, and overall, that's a good thing. And, you know, the brightly colored bungalows and, the water right there. And I, I just, I don't know, I guess I, I just really enjoy that. Um, and the people who live there, I don't know, they don't seem that weird to me, which I guess is saying something more about me than anything else. Um, 
but yeah, they're, they're a bunch of kind of, they're idealists, you know, they're idealists who have sort of given up, given up life in a bigger community in order to stay and, and live their values. Um, only those values get challenged over time. That's, that's a lot of the book. Um, but that's, that's kind of the foundation of the community is that it's people who really believed that they were doing what was right. They were doing what was right for animals and for the world. Um, and so they chose to, to live together and eat terrible food that Nano's dad is in charge of cooking. And clearly he should not be in charge of cooking it. And, um, you know, and, and, and this is just, they've chosen to do really hard things there, you know, things that, things that would probably really challenge what they believe, but, but they think that it's, it's what's right. Um, like they, they limit the number of dogs who are alive at any time. And they have this very sort of, there's a, it, it chills me to think about this, even though I, you know, it, anyway, it chills me to think about this thing, but they've developed this thing called kinder end, which is just a, it's an inhalant that is a euthanasia drug. Um, and they use it to limit the number of dogs who are there on, on dog Island at any time in the, in the sort of dog centric part of it, the dogs are living in a separate part of the Island called the refuge. Um, and there, there's only a handful of them who are allowed to live there at any time, um, because otherwise it'll get overcrowded. They're sort of just maintaining the species without, without trying to increase the number of them. Hmm. Um, did I answer your question? I feel like I just uh, you, yeah, you, you, you answered yeah. part, uh, part of it, but I was also wondering about um, the, the company Mechanical Tail, because there's a close oh. relationship between that company and, and the island and the people who live there. Right, right, right. So Mechanical Tail. Oh, I really loved Mechanical Tail. So Mechanical Tail is the company that builds the robot dogs. And what they're trying to do, they, you know, actually, I wrote this before we started seeing a lot of news about the, um, the robot dogs who are being used in police forces. Otherwise, I probably would have incorporated a little bit of that in there. Um, but the, the, the robot dogs that Mechanical Tail makes are all companions they don't serve any useful function they're there just to just to be your friend um and to to sort of replace the function that real dogs would have held for most families uh, uh, before the whole you know inciting incident of the book takes place um and they keep developing new models because they're not quite getting it right and, you know, they think that they're going to develop something that the robots that will take the place and that will allow people to live kind of, you know, pet keeping is pet keeping has a lot of sort of ethical complications to it. Um, and and they believe that these robot dogs will allow people to experience all the benefits of pet keeping and sharing lives with pets without any of those kind of murky parts of it. Um, but they keep not quite getting it right. And as the book goes on, um, you know, they're, they're getting more and more desperate to try to get people to buy these robot dogs. And they, you know, interspersed between the chapters are little ads for the robot dogs. And they keep getting, they keep getting more and more unhinged. Um, <laughs> but then there's, there's hero robot dogs in the book, too. I mean, there's, yeah, I, one of the, I, I should have said this at the beginning, one of the other inspirations for this book um, was I kept reading stories about the Ibo. Do you remember the Ibo? No, I don't. Okay. Well, this was, this was a robot dog that Sony made. Must have been, I don't know, a decade ago, something like this. And, you know, you bring a, you bring a robot dog into your life thinking, well, the one good thing I never have to worry about is that I'm going to, is that this dog is going to die. Right. Hmm. But they wore out and then Sony couldn't fix them. And I read this story about how Buddhist monks in Japan were holding funerals for robot dogs as they wore out and people couldn't fix them. And there was something just so profoundly moving about that. Um, just so profoundly moving to think about how, you know, even this kind of simulacrum, I think I'm pronouncing that right, but how we love them and how there must just be something built into us that's meant to meant to love animals, meant to love the animals we have a relationship with. And if you can build a good enough kind of model for one, even if they aren't real, you know, they feel real and you love them like they are. And just mm -hmm. how powerful that is.
Mm-hmm. Yeah, and 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 we're going to talk more about the robot dogs uh, uh, later on. Um, but um, yeah, so with respect to the the people who live on Dog Island, the group of people, um, yeah. I mean, I, I describe them as odd. I, I I take it that there's there's meant to be some important differences <laughs> between. <laughs> I I so and and you you mentioned that the the people on Dog Island are loosely based on people who actually live in a, a community called Gulfport. Um, yeah. But I take it that the people in the book are meant to be in 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 some very important ways different from the people who live in Gulfport. Um, yes. I mean, the people in the book are are so. Uh, it's it is a very cultish community, I guess, right? So yeah. there's um, a, a charismatic leader named uh, mm-hmm. Dorothy who um, uh, everyone follows, and they follow uh, relatively blindly, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, the um, they, they they have really interesting um, language that they've adopted. So there's all these dogisms that are used <laughs> by people on the on the island that that aren't used in the rest of the world. So instead of saying "Oh my God," they'll say like "Oh my dog." Instead of yeah. "God be with you," "Dog be with you," and they also I thought it was really cool. They refer to the, so at, at times they refer to their own views, their own beliefs as the dogma or dogma, um, which is a dogism. Um, but it's a particularly apt dogism because. The islanders are are fairly dogmatic <laughs> about their own beliefs. They they don't they haven't you know they, they they hold them, but they don't spend much time criticizing them. And when they do criticize them, or if anyone does publicly criticize the uh, the views or the group the group's views, um, they can be they can be subject to um, uh, penalty of, of various kinds. The, um, the the groups the group's leadership is not very tolerant of dissent. Um, so I mean I, I I I don't know if you want to comment on any of that, but I, that, that was something that really that 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 struck me like the. I, I mean, there, there are other parallels too. I think between um, the way cults operate and the way this the people on the island operate. Um, I mean, they so yeah, they live together communally, and um, most of, most people don't have private property. I don't think, and it's mm-hmm. difficult for it's it's it, there are barriers to leaving. Uh, yes. Um, so like it's it's relatively difficult to leave. Um, yeah. So all this kind of stuff. Do you do you want to comment on any of that? Like it looked like you were aiming at trying to, at just trying to describe something that's very much like a cult. Um, yeah. No, I think that's exactly right, and that was. That was what, I mean, just to get back to one of the inspirations for the book, that's part of what's so chilling to me about what this animal group does is they sort of draw people in and make them think that what they're doing is is what's right and what's good for animals. And then next thing you know, you're killing animals in the name of helping them. Um, and I guess we've kind of elided over that a little bit here, but I, yeah, I actually, no, I think I, I mentioned it, but you know, it's, it's, one of the chilling things here is that this group has been responsible for so many dogs' deaths. And and at the same time, they do sort of hold themselves up as kind of the moral authority on dogs and on protecting dogs and on preserving dogs. And it's it's really chilling. And, you know, the way that Dorothy kind of swoops people in is by being so charismatic in presenting this idealistic view of the world. And then by the time you're sort of participating in the parts that are much darker, this is your home and it is hard to leave. And it's, you know, cognitive dissonance is a hell of a thing. Um, and mm. it's, it's even if you, I don't know, I don't even know how many of the people really want to leave, you know, it's, it's their, their lives, it's their community. It's, and at the time that you decide, oh, actually this is really bad. I mean, what does that say about what it is that you've been doing and what you've been living? Um, it's it's hard. It's really mm-hmm. hard. Yeah, and I and I understand that. I I understand. I I think I don't know. I I think I understand how people find themselves in that kind of position. Um, but it can sure lead to some dark things. Mm-hmm. Okay. Cool. Thanks. Um, so, well, I, yeah. Let's. You, you've already kind of touched on this, but. Um, or on some of it, but so there, I, I take it there are two uh, main philosophical or, or uh, you know, given the how the cultishness of the people on Dog, Dog Island, maybe two maybe religious uh, perspectives in the book. Um, there's the view, so there's the views held by those who live on Dog Island, and we've already mm-hmm. said a little bit about what they believe. Um, but there's also the views held by those associated with a farmed animal sanctuary called Fuzzy mm-hmm. Mansion. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, this is, I mean, it's the, the views of these two groups is really where all the philosophy, a lot of the philosophy in the book happens. Um, I was hoping that you would explain uh, the beliefs that characterize each camp's philosophy, um, as well as uh, how their views are different from each other. And uh, and it, you, you, you've touched on this too, but I was also wondering whether there are any real world analogs that these um, philosophical camps are meant to resemble. Sure. Um 
so the fuzzy mansion, I that was just that was another sanctuary where I wanted to spend time in my head. Um, I've I've gotten to visit a, several sanctuaries for for farmed animals, and they're just they're just really really profoundly moving places. Um, I you know I I don't personally eat meat, so it's it's not usually an issue for me that I'll look at a cow in a sanctuary and think oh, that, that could have been the cow on my plate today. Um, but, you know, I do use dairy, I do eat eggs, and it's, it's something when you go to a place where animals who are usually treated as, as things, you know, as means of production, um, get treated as beings and are allowed. There's this wonderful book, a book of photographs called Allowed to Grow Old, and it's it's about animals in, in farmed animal sanctuaries who, just like the title says, are allowed to get old. And you realize that we don't even know what that looks like in pigs and cows and chickens because they don't usually get that chance. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And so so one of the things that that the dog islanders do is they're called into they're called in to participate in kind of animal cruelty investigations outside of the island. Like there's a team of people from the island who do that. So they go to places like roadside zoos where there's animals who are profoundly suffering, or they go to farms where where there's a lot of animal suffering and part of their job is to document it and also to get the animals out only under Dorothy, the, the head of Dog Island, under her instructions, they kill all the animals that they rescue. Um, and the and the justification that Dorothy gives is there's no one who's going to take them, you know, that, that, that at least we can prevent them from suffering more. And this is, this is the, the line of thought. It's, you know, it's better to kill all these animals than to, than to risk hmm. that their lives after this won't be any good. Um, and I, I, you know, I find that a pretty, pretty chilling frame of thought. It's not that, I don't believe in any euthanasia. I mean, I, I do. We just had to euthanize our beloved 14-year-old dog a couple of months ago because he'd gotten very sick and he told us that he was ready for it. But we didn't do it as a, you know, we didn't say, here's a whole category of animal who's never even going to get a chance. We, you know, it was an individual choice. Mm-hmm. And, you know, for the, for the Dog Island people, it, that's not how it is. It's, it's just sort of categorical um, mm-hmm. that rescue for them means rescue from life. And, and I, you know, I, I think the word death cult is not too strong of a word to use for that. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. And Fuzzy Mansion, you know, they have a different philosophy. They, they take in the animals who have no chance anywhere else. Um, but of course there too, they, they don't have all the animals. It's not like every time a, you know, an, an egg farm is uh, chickens are being removed from an egg farm. They're, they're not taking tens of thousands of chickens there. They have kind of model animals who, who are there to try to, you know, to live out their good lives, but also to try to sort of be, be models of, I I don't know if humanity is the right word, but sort of models of existence to show Mm -hmm. these are beings, these are creatures who are worthy of consideration and who, when given the chance, can have a good life. Um, yeah, so I, I don't know. Are, are those two philosophical differences? I, I, they might be more practical differences. Yeah, that. Yeah, that that's interesting. So yeah, they they. I, I think yeah, you're right, and I, I it was my impression too that um, the Dog Islanders and the the people associated with Fuzzy Mansion. Um, one of the main d- disagreements between them has to do with the ethics of euthanasia. Yeah. Um, yeah, the folks on Dog Island are terribly gung-ho about about euthanasia um and uh will euthanize that that's that's sort of the first option for them they they don't i mean so it it was interesting because um at times when like dorothy is confronted about um how gung-ho the dog or she is about euthanasia Mm -hmm. um she'll say that the reason for being so gung-ho about it is just that there are practical limitations on what they're able to do it's very difficult to find um, yeah, like loving homes and what and whatnot for for living animals. There's limit. There's limited resources, um, and so the main reason for euthanizing is just uh, it's too difficult to uh, care for the for the for for the for the animals yeah. who 
um, who need who need care. Um, she says, says, but we don't know how much effort she's actually put into trying to find alternatives. I mean, sorry, go ahead. ahead. No, I was just going to say she's she's very comfortable with using the kinder end. She's extremely comfortable with it uh, to a pretty chilling degree. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So that's right. It, it seems like the the for for the for Dorothy and for the people who um, who who are particularly who are following her in a particularly dogmatic manner, um, the um, this this worry about practical limitations is almost more of a cover than anything else. It's really not what's motivating them. Um, so what what's really motivating them when when at times the views get exposed a little bit more in the book was something more like the view that ultimately what matters is eliminating suffering as much as possible or something mm-hmm. like that. And um, the, the, the thought almost seems to be that a life that includes some suffering is worse than no life is worse than no life at all. So if you're, if there's a choice between death and a life that just includes some suffering, it's better to choose death than to choose a life that has some suffering in it, which is an odd philosophical view that seems to get the relationship between good experiences and bad experiences and how to add them up uh, make trade-offs between them. Um, wrong, probably. <laughs> um, yeah, it's like a was... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, right. So, to, yeah, to use that that term, yeah. it's it's a it's a kind of extreme version of of what philosophers call negative utilitarianism. Right. Um, which uh, so yeah, utilitarians uh, are very interested in uh, producing the best consequences possible with as much happiness as or sorry, as much um, good welfare as possible. But negative utilitarians, who are I guess very extreme about their their particular version of utilitarianism will weigh when, when evaluating states of affairs, they'll weigh the badness of suffering much more heavily than the goodness of positive experiences. And so yeah. the goal ends up becoming to just eliminate suffering as much as possible. And even yeah. at the expense of sacrificing huge amounts of positive experience. Um, yeah. Right. And sacrificing a life. I mean, this yeah. is, and you can take it, you know, you can take it to the extreme where it's not even actual suffering that you're eliminating, but just the potential of suffering um, and then you sort of reach the point where you, you can't really make any argument for life at all at that point, because mm-hmm. every life involves the potential of suffering. And, and yeah, I mean, I, I think you sort of lead yourself. I, look, all the, I mean, as, as you know, because of, as you know, you know, all of this stuff is very hard to make rules over. You know, it's very hard to differentiate, like, when is... When is it okay to take a life? When is it not okay to take a life? At what point is it okay? I mean, we struggle with this in a practical sense when it comes to euthanasia for the animals we love the most. You know, mm-hmm. is it a day too early? Is it a day too late? You know, it's 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 never easy to make this decision. Um, but but the idea that that you're just going to eliminate all living things because all living things could suffer is really, I mean, I. I would hope that we can all agree or most of us agree that that's really taking it too far mm-hmm. and that if we're willing to accept that, then I don't know. I, I don't think that there's any argument for any living at all at that point. Yeah. And, and, and Dorothy goes there very briefly at one point, right? So at one point we find mm-hmm. out that um, even though this isn't normally what she talks about in her advocacy, um, it comes out that ultimately she would would like it to be the case or one day for it to be the case that all wild animals are replaced with robots mm-hmm. um uh so and what that would mean i think is euthanizing all existing wild animals and then building mm-hmm. robot versions of them which um it, i mean that i think that idea requires a lot of unpacking but i mean one one of one of the things that it seems to reflect is just this idea that a life with any suffering is not worth living at all yeah, um, yeah. no exactly Exactly. And, and I don't know, it's, it, I guess I spent the whole book trying to figure out what do you do with somebody who believes that and not only believes it, but has the whole mechanism of power at her disposal. Mm-hmm. I and mean, it's, it's scary. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, let's let, this is, a, this is a, a fun topic to talk about the, the differences between these two um, camps, but uh, I, I think it'd be good to, to move on and talk about the robots. Um, so the, yeah. The robot dogs, um, such as Nano's dog Billy, who is who's named after her brother, because um, yeah, so there's the human Billy, and then there's the dog Billy, the mm-hmm. robot dog Billy. But yeah, Nano's dog Billy, uh, robot dogs such as Nano, Nano's dog Billy are like they're then pretty an important part of the book. Um, and so one of the interesting things about them is just the role they play. They're they're meant to be um, an an ethical alternative to something that's allegedly unethical. So an an ethical alternative to owning a biological dog. Um, another thing that's interesting about them, though, 
is um, the ambiguity or what I thought was ambiguity surrounding whether robot dogs have minds. Mm -hmm. um, so on the one hand, they're supposed to not be sentient. That's kind of the whole idea. Um, and and they're, so they're often referred to using object language like it. Um, on the other hand, though, um, Nano forms what seems like um, emotional bonds with her robot dogs. And uh, there are a number of times when uh, her dog Billy's behavior suggests that he could be sentient. There's evidence of it. So, yeah, I was hoping you would uh, just comment on some of this. No, I think you've hit on it exactly. And I think and the ambiguity is on purpose. Um, you know, I, it's funny because as soon as you start talking about it, I, you know, this is crazy for a book that I wrote this many years ago. Um, but I can feel myself sort of getting emotional thinking about Billy the robot dog and the bond that he and Nano share. And, you know, I don't, I guess I'll, I'll, I'll give this spoiler, but like, you know, at one point she has to sort of send him away because, because he's got a locator in him. And if, if, if he's with her, then the people from Dog Island are going to be able to find her where she's sort of hiding out, trying to figure out what she's going to do. So she, she sends him away. She drops him off by the side of the road really reluctantly and it breaks her heart, but she does it. Um, you know, and if he's just a, you know, if he's equivalent to a table or a chair, you know, property, a thing, then it shouldn't matter at all. But, but it's heartbreaking. And then when he reappears again later, I, I, you know, I find it one of the most emotional scenes to write. Um, you know, he, he finds her again, he comes back to her and does he do it because he's programmed to do that? I, I don't know. It doesn't feel that way though, you know, and then, and then, I don't know. It it feels real, but I I I don't know that you'd have any way to know if it is or if it isn't. Um, but it sure feels that way, and I I don't know. I think their relationship is real. I mean, the whole book begins with this scene of so so one of the setups of the book is that every year the mechanical tail people give dog islanders a new model of robot dog to try out, and they spend the year sort of saying what works and what doesn't work about it but they take away the old models. So, you know, the book opens with the mechanical tail rep coming to take away Nano's previous year's robot dog. There's this little dog named Derek who she's grown really attached to, you know, and it's, it's essentially a, how this is really going to make people want to read the book. <laughs> it's, it's essentially a euthanasia scene, you know, of, of the old robot dog saying goodbye and him being shut down. I say him, I mean, a, it I, I don't know being mm -hmm. shut down and nano's heartbreak at this at this robot who she spent mm -hmm. a year with bonding with and living with and you know observing in minute detail of of him just sort of being taken away from her and then a new one's showing up and she's you know she vows she's not going to feel anything for this one because it's just too painful to go through this year after year and i i don't know i mean i i the ambiguity is there on purpose and Yet in my heart of hearts, I feel like there is some something real there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I, I, that it, uh, I, I suspected the ambiguity was there on purpose. Um, uh, I think I, I, with respect to um, uh, Billy the dog uh, and yeah, the the part of the book you mentioned where um, Nano ends up having to leave him behind because of the uh, yeah the tracker that's in him, I guess. Uh, and then he comes back and finds her. Um, I thought the way you wrote that was interesting um, because. Uh, Billy's behavior, not only does he does he make a point of finding her, um, which I guess you could say maybe that's just his programming, but he's not behaving the way he normally does when he finds her. He's behaving uh, as if he as if he um, is fearful or anxious or has trepidation or something like that. Like he doesn't know whether Nano wants him anymore or something, or at least that's what his behavior suggests. He's sort of hiding. He's he's looking at her, but he's like worried about coming over to see her. Um, uh, I, I don't know if you remember that that part of the book very well, but I, I thought it suggested to me that like. He's, he's, he's having emotions. Like it would be hard to explain this part of his behavior with programming. Um, yeah, but not impossible. Right. I mean, if, if, you know, you could imagine, you could imagine a robot that actually did have some kind of, I don't know, nuanced emotion like that, or at least right. the ability to display a nuanced emotion like that, that, that had been taught to you know, that, that when humans do this one thing, then when you see them again, 
you know, they will expect you to do this other thing and, and that's how you behave. I mean, I, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a programmer by any means, but mm -hmm. I can imagine that being possible. Um, yeah, no, I mean, I, I should have said it differently, I guess, um, because I mean, um, all of, all of the robot dogs, uh, behavior is going to be, uh, uh, explainable via programming because that's that's yeah. where their that's where their mental any mental activity they have comes yeah, from it comes from their programming yeah, yeah. but it, it would be hard to it would be awkward to say that this is um mindless robotic yeah. behavior instead of minded robotic behavior mm -hmm. or something like that um uh i mean we we uh, i don't know if we want to we, we could get a little bit into philosophy of mind I, I don't do philosophy of mind myself i'm more of a moral philosopher but i know that in some views on the kind of uh, some views about what mental states are um, and, and about how we would go about identifying mental states. Um, if, if, if hypothetically, if we had robots whose programming was functionally equivalent to mental states, um, it produced behavior in, in the same ways that mental states would, um, there's no functional difference at all. Um, then that would just count as, as mental states. It would be, it wouldn't be coming from a biological brain. It would be coming from an artificial brain, but we should just think of those as mental states because there'd be philosoph no, no important philosophical difference between, um, what we're seeing coming from a robot like that and, and what we see coming from ourselves. Um, I, I think, I, I, and so I, I doubt you do, you, you, may, you may not do uh, philosophy of mind or, or what have you, um, but um, I, 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 I kind of got the impression that you were kind of aim thinking like that. You were thinking something like, um, if, yeah, if Mechanical Tail is trying to create um, robot dogs that are as similar as possible to organic dogs, they're trying to create the perfect replica um, if they actually did that, if they created replicas that were really, really good, um, one of the ways they'd be similar to organic dogs is just they have they have minds. <laughs> um, it, what, uh, yeah, yeah, I don't know. No, I think that's really smart. And actually, it, it gave me an insight that I don't think I had even had until just now, which is that essentially in trying to, to eliminate the, the ethical problems with organic animals, you've just recreated them with mechanical animals with robots that you haven't you haven't solved any of the problems at all you've actually just created a whole new species to have these same problems with and now we now we have these new creatures who you know yeah. behave the same as the the animals we mistreated before and now we're doing to them the exact same thing that we did to those previous animals I, I was thinking exactly that. I was gonna. I was gonna ask you about. <laughs> so it, 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 it's so much more hopeless. I think of myself as being, you know, kind of like a, a, a darkly optimistic writer. But yeah. Wow, that just got really hopeless. <laughs> well, it's 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 a real cool source of irony within the book. So I mean, it yeah. it, it is to be fair meant to be ambiguous whether the robot dogs, at least like the later models specifically, perhaps, yeah. um, have um, minds. But if they do. I mean, they're, the robot dogs are not being treated well. They're treated as objects. And, yeah. and Mechanical Tail is definitely just treating them as 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 objects who you can mm -hmm. just do with as you please. That's the whole idea. They're supposed to not have any kind of moral status. But if they, if the, in, if they actually manage to succeed in their goal of creating the perfect replicas and as a result end up creating beings that have moral status, then there's, the irony is, is right there. I mean, they've just created a new... Um, moral catastrophe uh, and and re uh, replace the old one with a new one like the moral catastrophe that was associated with organic dogs has been replaced by uh, by a new one associated with these um these robot dogs yeah um, yeah wow i you know and i hadn't even realized i'd written exactly that and that's that's completely right that's exactly what's happened cool and um, i think as food, i think i think where nano comes out at the end of the book anyway um is that you know whether whether these robot dogs have this actual moral status or don't she feels toward them as if they do and is going to behave as if they do and that's sort of where she comes out that when you know that when you have the option of of behaving kindly or not behaving kindly you, you do the thing that's kind even if it's not necessary mm -hmm. right okay um well, so let's let's move on. I think um, another respect in which your book, another way in which your book is a work of speculative fiction, is that it explores what might happen in the event of a, a long, severe worldwide drought. Mm -hmm. um, one thing that struck me as important or significant about this drought is that um, even though it isn't one of the problems that the book's characters are trying to solve, um, it nonetheless ends up um, uh, being resolved during the book's resolution phase. The the drought ends. Uh, at the end of the book. 
Um, I was hoping you would explain how the drought affects the book's characters. Um, and also, I was wondering whether the drought was meant to have um, some symbolic significance. Yeah, I think it's probably more symbolic than actual in the book. Um, yeah, I mean, I really, the the drought is sort of the drought is sort of the the, the existential catastrophical thing. Um, I think it's more than an event because it's it's sort of a state of being, but it's the thing that sort of makes all these other changes in society, including, you know, all the stuff that's happening with the dogs. Um, you know, it's it's splintering where people can live. It's changing how you can eat. You know, technology adapts to to live in a world like that. Um, but for Nano, for the main character, you know, she's never lived in a world that that isn't like this. You know, all the water she's ever drunk was recycled from, you know, from various places and and Dog Island. You know, not a drop gets wasted. Um, but that's just that's just life as she knows it. You know, and she's cut off from the rest of the world. And I don't think she knows. I don't think she knows what it's like to not live in a drought. Um, so, you know, this kind of this kind of world that would have that that we're all living through right now, where we don't know what's about to happen next, but it seems like it might be pretty bad. You know, she she didn't go through that stage of watching of of fear and reaction and and not being able to do anything or what you can do might not be enough, you know, and then change and then adaptation and, and all of that. She just grew up in the world that had already changed like this. Um, and the drought was one of the things that she just, that she just lived with. Um, yeah. And then I guess, I guess that's my sort of hopeful tendency in the world is, is maybe things can work out. Okay. So, you know, the, the, very end, there's a little bit of rain that starts to come. And, you know, it's, it's as things are changing on Dog Island, too. And, and I think that's, that's just me being hopeful, I think. Mm -hmm. that's, that's just my disposition. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, it, it, it struck me as it seemed conspicuous to me, like, uh, I, maybe one doesn't have to say anything too concrete about about the drought significance or whatever. But, um, you know, the, by the end of the book, the people on Dog Island, um, they're not, they're not the way they used to be. They are exercising more agency. They're thinking more about what they want their views to be. They're not just accepting what, what, what Dorothy has told them. Um, so they're, they're kind of, they've become a more autonomous group, I think. Um, mm -hmm. and, um, there's a sense in which, um, yeah, there was kind of like a metaphorical drought that happened under Dorothy where no one was really thinking too hard and yeah. was just, everyone was just following orders. And now all of a sudden there's this like renaissance of, uh, like a, 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 kind of like an intellectual renaissance, but more about like an intellectual renaissance about how they want to live. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, so like the metaphorical drought is over. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. That's right. And things can grow and live again. You're right, right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I think that's like you're really making me understand my book. <laughs> can I give you the draft of the book that I'm working on now? Oh yeah, you're you're so okay. Actually, I'm about to, I was about to say so. Um, uh, I mean, uh, the, the next thing I want to ask you about is just is is future projects. But but before I before mm -hmm. I ask you about future projects, um, uh, I, I want to thank you for 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 joining us to talk about your book. Your robot dog will die. Uh, this book was published in 2018 by Soho Press. And yeah, um, uh, it seems that you are working on some on some projects. You're working on a book. Um, yep, I'd love to hear about it. Oh sure, yeah. No, there's a book that I've been working on pretty much ever since I finished Robot Dog. Um, it's another dog book, and it's another one where people who are feeling sort of hopeless try to find hope and purpose um, through their relationships with animals. But this mm -hmm. one is about a. This one is is also with a young protagonist. Um, she and her mother. Uh, have just left their home in Florida to move back up to Rhode Island for reasons that the daughter finds extremely mysterious and frustrating. And she's heartbroken over the loss of her first love and hmm. just feels like everything is falling apart. Um, and then she finds a, she finds a loose dog in a park one night when she's walking home and it sort of, sort of changes everything for her. Um, you know, and there's a lot of sort of family mysteries to be resolved and, and, new love to find and, and all sorts of things. But it's, it's about this, this girl and her family, mm -hmm. um, learning to sort of find purpose and find each other and find humanity through, through taking care of this dog that they find. 
Well, that that sounds uh, that sounds cool. Is it um is it uh, another young adult novel? Uh, this one, I well, that's a good question. Um, I think my agent is trying to to find a publisher for it now, and I I, I think the thinking is it could be young adult or it could be adult. Um, sort okay. of depends on who's interested in it. I, I hope it would have a broad readership, mm-hmm. find a lot of people who are interested in it. Um, but it does have a young a young protagonist. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Well, um, what you've described sounds like, based on what I know about you, it sounds like the kind of book you you would write. Um, and uh, uh, if I, I I don't I don't know if you're if it's going to explore a whole lot of um, philosophy and whatnot, um, but uh, I'm I'm sure it'll be good regardless. Um, so yeah, I, I hope the I hope the project goes well. Thank you, yeah. thank you. I appreciate that. Okay, great. Well, it's been it's been wonderful talking to you. I hope you have, hope you enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you. You too. And thanks for having me on. And thanks for giving me these insights into my work. I really, I, I loved it. I, I'm glad I could be helpful. It was, it was great talking to you.